Welcome to Heroine City, the podcast that highlights fascinating stories of women in history. I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we'll be talking about the World War II Special Operations Executive for the British Resistance stationed in France, Noor Inayat Khan. With us in Heroine City today, we have Shrabani Basu. Shrabani is a journalist and Sunday Times bestselling author. Her books include For King and Another Country, Indian Soldiers on the Western Front, 1914-18, Victoria and Abdul, The True Story of the Queen's Closest Confidant, Now a Major Motion Picture, and Spy Princess, The Life of Noor Inayat Khan. She was born in Calcutta and grew up in Dhaka, Kathmandu and Delhi. She graduated in history from St Stephen's College, Delhi and completed her master's from Delhi University. She moved to London in 1987. She has always combined her journalism with her love of history and all her books have evolved from her observations about the shared histories of India and Britain. Shrabani is a frequent commentator on Indian history and empire on British television and radio and has appeared in several documentaries. In 2010, Shrabani set up the Noor Nayak Khan Memorial Trust to ensure that Noor's story and sacrifice were preserved to the next generations. Her work to preserve the memory of the World War II heroine has been commended in the House of Lords. In 2020, she was invited by English Heritage to unveil the blue plaque for Noor Inayat Khan in London. Welcome to Heroin City, Shrabani. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Lindsay. Oh, thank you for being here. I know you're a very, very busy person, so uh, we appreciate you coming in through the gates to Heroin City and joining us today to talk about Noor Inayat Khan. Now, this is a special person who I had a little bit of kind of knowledge of here and there. I, I remember the, the statue and the plaque, I think, being unveiled. And recently, her name came up when we were talking about different people that we wanted to feature on the podcast. And I'm aware of your work because I've seen Victoria and Abdul a wonderful (laughs) film about the book that you wrote about that. I'm very excited to meet you, so thank you for being here. What I wanted to do for those people that perhaps don't know Noor and what she did, could you please give us kind of an overview of who she was and and what she did and why we should know more about her? The short summary is uh, that Noor Inayat Khan was a secret agent in the Second World War. She was an SOE agent. She was sent undercover to France. She worked in Paris. She did crucial work for the Allies, but unfortunately she was betrayed uh, imprisoned and then tortured and killed so it's pretty brutal but she was um, for her bravery she was awarded the George Cross but her story was forgotten Uh, she was killed in Dachau she was just 30 when she died and uh, over the years you know just the story had gone. It's when I discovered her name that I felt I, I really needed to know more about her for myself and then write her biography. <laughs> Absolutely. And how did you discover her? Where, what was your experience of finding out about her? Well, actually, it was for the 50th anniversary of VE Day, long time back now, many, many, you know, over 20 years ago. And it was a small article in a newspaper about the contribution of Indian soldiers to the Second World War. In this big, you know, this prayer, there was, you know, with photographs of all the Indian soldiers and their turbans and all looking very good. In the corner was a small photograph of a woman, and it was Nurinath Khan. And of course, uh, you know, being a woman, I was just drawn to that picture. She's in her Air Force uniform. All it said in the caption was Nurinath Khan, wireless operator, killed in Dachau, and she was awarded the George Cross. It was literally four, you know, bullet points. And I was so curious as to how 
an Indian woman was at the heart of the war in Europe. So I wanted to know how she got there, what she did. When it said secret agent, I was like, wow, was she this Matahari figure? You know, what was she? I knew nothing about her. So that's how this journey started, really. I want to know about the sources, where you started with that journey. But also, why do you think her story was forgotten? Do you think that's partly because she was a woman? Or, you know, what do you think that is? Yes, maybe she was a woman, but I think also because she was Indian. You know, there were only three women who were awarded the George Cross from the SOE. So one was Violet Zabel, one was Odette Hansen, and the third was Nourinath Khan. Two of them died, Violet Zabel and Nourinath Khan. But when I went, uh, you know, early days of research, I went to the Imperial War Museum where they had the George Cross room. I was quite shocked to find just the photographs of the other two women and Noor wasn't there at all. It did hurt me in a way. I say, you know, she died for this country. Why has her story been forgotten? It's not something I can answer. I just think it's because she was Indian, because she came from Paris, maybe because she wasn't local. I mean, I'm just searching for answers here. Yeah. Uh, but point is, she was. <laughs> yeah, and actually Paris, they, they were a lot quicker to award her the posthumous honours and recognise her sacrifice. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I found more about her. There was a square named after her. It's called Kur Madeleine, which was her code name, and below it is written Nourinath Khan. So there was a lot in Paris and in other parts of France about her, but she was called Madeleine of the Resistance in France. A band uh, plays outside her house on Armistice Day. They do that to all the resistance workers. But, you know, she was known in France, but forgotten in Britain. You know, she was trained here. She went out as a British agent. So it was all the more shocking for me. And did that just fuel you even more in your journey? to make sure that people understood her and knew about her. Absolutely, it did. A, I wanted to know for myself and I wanted other people to know her story. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad you're here. And that's also <laughs> firing me up to want to know more. So thank you. So you were at Imperial War Museum. Tell us about the journey with the sources. So what happened is, uh, well, when I got to know a little bit about her, there was luck as well because... You know, a little time had elapsed and I hadn't really found much online. Then, as luck would have it, her files were declassified. So I work as a journalist. I get these alerts from museums and others. And suddenly here in my inbox was this alert that SOE files had been released. And among them was the file of Nuri Nayat Khan. And it was like, wow, that's a sign. I was in there in the National Archives in queue like a shot, just opening these files. You know, I'm probably one of the first to see them. And it was just brilliant because in these files, lay the story of you know her life in secret basically brilliant and did you go back to Jean Overton Fuller's account this is someone who actually personally knew Noor Mm. Yeah, Jean was really important to me because at this time, you know, 2003, there were very few people alive who actually knew Noor. And Jean was one of them. Jean, to me, was also a friend of Noor. So she was someone I wanted to interview to get the personal side of Noor. You know, what did she sound like? What was she like as a person, as a friend? Uh, So it was important for me to meet Jean. Uh, But of course, Jean had worked before the files were declassified. Her book has really important details, but a lot of it is not factually correct. But there some things that she managed to get which others didn't because she interviewed people on the spot so wherever I could use Jean's I did but most of it for me Jean was important as her friend so I think that interview to me brought out Noor's character also the major source was the files not just of Noor because I read the files of all the agents who worked with Noor so it was on Telm it was the other agents it was the person who betrayed her a double agent Derrico so I read all their files and there was things in other people 
people's files, which were not in Noor's files. So it was like putting a giant jigsaw puzzle together. And of course, um, for her background, her personal life, her family, all that, I contacted her family. And their archives there gave me a lot about her childhood, her days as a young adult. Her brothers spoke to me. So, you know, that really brought Noor alive to me when her family spoke about her. Yeah, and I felt that when I was reading the book. So for everyone that hasn't read the book or will go on to read the book, perhaps we should paint the picture of who she was because I think you mentioned things that I wanted to ask you about. Obviously, you know what happened to her in the end and you're writing this from that perspective. I felt like there was kind of a search for how she was able to do what she did, did. the Mm -hmm. way she did it and so impressively. There are some kind of nods to the fact that you're searching for those kind of answers within her childhood and her upbringing. Maybe Mm -hmm. you can just give us a little bit of an idea of who she was as a child and growing up. Right. So her background is pretty exotic. She was born in Moscow in 1914. Uh, 1914, as we know, outbreak of the First World War. So somehow her life is linked to the wars. So she is born to an Indian father, Hazrat Inayat Khan, and her mother was American, Ora Ray Baker. Now, Hazrat Inayat Khan, her father was a Sufi. And to go into her background, Sufism, for those who don't know, is a branch of Islam which believes in music and meditation as the way to, you know, reach God and enlightenment. So her father used to preach, you know, talk about Sufism. And he had left India on the instructions of his teacher to take Sufism to the West. So he had gone to the U.S., where he had met Noor's mother, they had fallen in love, they came back and they were married in London. And then while they were briefly in London, he got an invite to go to Moscow. So that's how they landed up in Moscow. And Noor was born there. But of course, Moscow in 1914, there was a lot of political agitation going on, and they had to move very quickly. So they came back to London. They spent the First World War in London, and went to France after that, after the war was over. When Noor was six, the family moved to France. And that is where Noor grew up. So because he was a Sufi, he had a lot of Sufi followers. And they gave him this large house on the outskirts of Paris in a place called Suren. This is where they lived. He called the house Fazal Manzil, which means house of blessing. So it's a large house. It's standing there still. It is still the family house. It became a house of music and meditation. Sufis would come for the summer camp. Jean Novotin Fuller actually went there on a summer camp. And that's how she met because she wanted to know about Sufism. Noor grew up in this very idyllic home. She had three brothers and sisters. There were four of them. She played the harp. They were all musical. They were really musically talented. Uh, So they were they literally formed a quartet. Uh, her younger sister played the piano, one played the violin, brother played the cello, and they would give concerts. And Noor herself was growing to be a children's writer. That's what she wanted to be. So as she grew up, she started writing short stories for children. And these were published in the local newspapers in La Figaro, you know, in the Sunday edition. So she was already getting to be a published writer. And she wanted to write a book, which she did. It was called 20 Jataka Tales. It was about tales told uh, from the Buddhist stories, a bit like Aesop's fables with a moral. She chose 20 of these stories and she retold them for children. So this was published in Britain in 1939. But of course, at this time, you know, the war clouds were gathering around Europe. It was no time for a writer of children's books. The family then had to really take some important decisions. And 1940, with the German army standing outside Paris, she and her brother 
decided that they would leave Paris and they would travel to England and they would join the war effort. It was quite radical of them to say that because as Sufis, they believed in nonviolence. So they had all these disapproving uncles and family and other Sufis who said, you know, this is not right. But brother and sister, there was something in them. You know, they were determined that they would do their bit for the war effort. And her brother, Vilayat, said, we can't stand by and watch this. We have to do something. And Noor was equally determined. So the family packed up. They joined all the refugees leaving Paris and they made it to England. They land in London. Noor signs up for the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, the WAF. (laughs) And suddenly she's just a number. She isn't known as the, you know, daughter of Hazrat Inayat Khan, Pirza, the Nur Nisa Inayat Khan. She's just <laughs> Air Force officer and a number. And actually, she loves it. Yeah, you said that she actually found, found that quite a relief just to be another person, just the same as the next person. And actually, it's really interesting, I think, important to say that, like you say, they didn't have to do it. There was no pressure on them to join up. There was no pressure on them to do what they did. So the fact that they came to that decision of their own and stood out in family for deciding that is also mm-hmm. extremely impressive. How much do you think the Sufi teachings that you talk about, loyalty, love, sacrifice, all those things that she was also repeating when she was translating the stories for children, how much do you think this was kind of ingrained in her sense of being, so much so that when she saw what was happening, she had to stand mm-hmm. up for what she believed? She did. It really was because her father taught taught these, you know, and she would listen to her father's lectures. She herself wrote these short stories where she was inspired by women who had sacrificed their lives, fought for courage, determination. Joan of Arc was one of her heroines, you know, very understandable. The Rani of Jhansi, who is an Indian warrior queen who went to battle against the British with her child strapped on her back, sort of a legend in India. So she wrote about the Rani of Jhansi as well. She had this mix of all these brave women that she wrote about and they obviously inspired her their sacrifice also i think inspired her very recently about a few months ago her family discovered a little note she had written to herself and didn't see if they sent it to me so i'll read if you if it's okay i'll read that little extract it's actually really quite moving she wrote it in french so this is a translation and it's just a short extract that i'll read from it and it's actually headlined thoughts that help me in life and she writes in my moments of despair I remember that God is too good to want to inflict hardship and great suffering upon us. Hard times are necessary to make us aware of happiness in life. Just as light is born from darkness, so joy is born from suffering. Is one lost, distraught? This is when one can achieve something great. Does effort seem to yield no result? There is always a result. Is the darkness still there? No, it is dissipating. And it's signed... Nurin Nisa in Ayat Khan. So for me, this this writing notes to herself was really important. It showed that she was often in conflict, but she probably had a premonition that things lay ahead. Maybe war is about to break out and she feels something and she she knows that she'll be called on to make a sacrifice and she feels she wants to do something. I don't know because it's not exactly dated, but it is written in French and it is obviously something she wrote in Paris just before the war. So it tells me how she dealt with conflict, how she always felt... She would be called upon to make a sacrifice. 
And you actually put that in the book, don't you, that she had a short lifeline on her palm and she did have <laughs> premonitions and so did her brother, didn't he? So it's really interesting. I thought to myself, you're writing this book having already understood what happened to her. Mm-hmm. Such an, an upsetting mm-hmm. end and a sad mm-hmm. story. How much mm-hmm. are you, you as a person just naturally looking to find light and mm-hmm. to find meaning in her life? It's a really brilliant picture of her before the war, I think. War. And I think it's necessary because when mm-hmm. you get to the end of the book... It really is Mm -hmm. quite hard to hear Mm -hmm. or read. Also, when you talk about the training, it's like she was in training her whole life. And then you have the actual SOE training and you're kind of like, well, she's already prepared herself, whether knowingly or not. It is. I mean, for me, I had to find out why she went, how she went, and, you know, all these details that um, needed to be found. But what was also interesting is, as I spoke to her brothers, um, there was this steely side to Noor. So there is this soft and delicate and dreamy person. And on the other side, there is also a very steely, determined person. Her brothers told me how, because their father died very early, so she sort of became a mother to all her siblings, and she took charge of their homework and everything, made sure they got to school on time. So she had to take on all these roles. When she was just 13, they'd say, oh, she was a bully, all right, you know, she would make us work. So there was a, you know, a sort of determined side to her. Her father would tell them, now they were descended from Indian royalty, so they are descended from Tipu Sultan, who was the ruler of Mysore, a state in southern India. Tipu Sultan actually died on the battlefield. He was very brave. He was known as the Tiger of Mysore. He died on the battlefield fighting the British. His treasures are all in the museums here from the VNA and various other museums. The point is he was known as the Tiger and her father would tell them, you have the blood of Tipu in your veins. And I think that is something that really gave her a lot of courage. Her character, I see as a balance of this dreamy musician, writer of children's stories, and at the same time, somebody who's very determined, has a very steely side and a passion, a real passion to do something if she has to do that comes across. It comes across that she knew who she was. She might have to think about things for a second, but she absolutely knew who she was. And the honesty, she wasn't able to lie. It's a fascinating mix. And like you say, it's never one thing. It's always combinations of things. The fact that she felt like a global citizen, like someone that's, that's got all these different influences, different countries, parents, mm-hmm. and then this grounding in her father dying, like you say, all created the mix of within her. Of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if she volunteers for um, the RAF, she could have stayed on the sidelines. She is trained as a radio operator. She really practices hard. She's very good. So I saw the reports in the RAF. She's, you know, they're all marked VG, very good. She has excellent speed. But at the same time, while she is sort of banging away learning her Morse code, she is being watched by a secret organization called the SOE, who are looking out for people with language skills. And now Noor fits the bill because she's fluent in French. She speaks French like a native. She knows Paris inside out. You know, she studied there. She went to Col Normal. She went to the Sorbonne. She knows the streets, the alleyways of Paris. She has friends. She has contacts. She is also a very good radio operator. So she is somebody just waiting to be recruited. And so they interview her. And her interview is the shortest. He literally tells her, you'll be sent as a secret agent. You won't be in uniform. So you have no protection. If you are caught, you will be shot. And will you take the job? And Noor says yes. And it's not a knee-jerk reaction, really, because it's something she believed in. She would do it. And she writes a letter accepting the offer. It's a really beautiful letter, which was in the files in the National Archives. I realize that my mother will miss me. But at this time, when this war is on, I realize how family matters are not as important 
and how high the stakes are. Winning this war is the most important thing. And she is just in her 20s. And you think, what are people doing in their 20s? She is so focused. She knows exactly what she wants. And she is determined to do her bit. There's no stopping her. So she's recruited and her life in secret begins. It's a whole new chapter to her life. Very different. She is now going to be on the front line. She could have volunteered for nursing, something on the sidelines, but no, Noor wanted to be out there. <laughs> and she, she went for it. <laughs> yeah. And like you say, she didn't have to think too long. because She always understood the gravity of things. It's because they'd already been asking these questions because they'd had that kind of upbringing, isn't it? Where they'd ask questions and that sort of super awareness Mm -hmm. of the world Absolutely. around her had been instilled in her and you know the philosophical way of thinking and I think that comes across definitely and there's no way that that didn't help her in her darker times for sure that bit that you just mentioned did touch me family was so important to her for her to then say it's not what's important right now is winning this war and of course she's not prepared for what the SOE is going to be because yeah she's volunteered all right um, she's going to be trained in all these country houses but of course it involves arms training suddenly it's a whole new world something that she's never done she doesn't want to hold a gun and her reports say she's terrible at firing but she's good at other things she is a very fast runner she can clamber onto roofs uh, she's very good at radio and even though she's you know, she can't fire a gun. Uh, she tries. She really tries. She knows she's got to do this and she will do it. She will master it. Her reports also mention that she tries hard. All the positive things about her are there as well as the negative things. Some say she's too dreamy. She's too beautiful to be a secret agent because as a spy, you have to blend rather than stand out. And Noor stands out. So she did cause a lot of controversy even at the training school because there were questions about whether she should be sent. But her supervisors, they stood by her and they said, no, we see her as somebody really determined and she will do it. Uh, they had full confidence in her. So she is sent. There's also this question raised that she says, I won't lie. Now, you know, you're going out as a spy. You're going with a passport that has a different name. You're Jean-Marie Renier. You have a code name. You're obviously going to have to lie. So I think that was just something she said about, but she knew what it entailed, that obviously there is a false front that she has and she's going to do it. She had hesitation about firing. She really did not want to kill anyone. She also said that, if they ask her anything, she wouldn't lie. She would just bear it because she knew. I mean, they go through the run. They train you that you will be, if you're caught, you'll be interrogated. The Nazi interrogation is brutal. So she is mentally prepared for that. But she knows that she's not going to lie. She's not going to say anything. And that is the sort of thing she goes out with. And ultimately, we realize that's what happens. I think the certainty in her character is what people picked up on, wasn't it? Regardless of whether she's good at this or not good at that, that was the thing that was going to see her through just this absolute self-belief. You make me think of the one thing, thing that she took literally, which was the filing of her codes, <laughs> which is an interesting mm -hmm. sort of little sidebar, because even though she perhaps misunderstood what were very unclear instructions. She still did that brilliantly. Everything was, you know, you say the, the A-plus student. So perhaps tell us a little bit about that, please. So when they are sent out, they're sent out with a false passport, a few francs, nothing to give them away that they have come from London. Even their clothes are made in France. Their hairstyles are done to look like the haircut was in France. Everything. And so she goes out there. She follows her instructions. She sends a message within 72 hours of landing, the fastest that they have received the radio message from an agent. So she's excellent in that. 
but there is disaster waiting to happen. Within a week of her joining, her circuit is compromised. Somebody has betrayed them and there is a raid. Everybody around her is arrested. So the leader of the circuit, the circuit used to work in threes. There'd be a courier, a wireless operator and the leader. The wireless operator, the leader, everyone is arrested. So she's left all alone. And London actually tells her to come back. They say, come back. It's very dangerous. We'll organize a flight, get you back. And no replies. She writes to her chief, Maurice Buckmaster, and says, no, it's really important that I stay here. I'm the last person left. I will rebuild the circuit and I need to be here. So Maurice Buckmaster knows it's it's almost like a sacrifice. And he says he's ready to accept her sacrifice. They let Noor stay on. And she actually does manage to rebuild the circuit. The work she does is brilliant. Most radio operators last only six weeks. And I can explain why the radio operator is so crucial in this whole game. Noor lasts three months. Her messages are flawless. They are delighted with her in London. But she would have come back if she hadn't been betrayed. And that is the irony. She had been given a secret code as well. But things go horribly wrong, of course, and she is betrayed. Let me tell you why this wireless is really important. It's because it was very dangerous for wireless operators. A, the wireless was disguised in like a mini suitcase. It weighed about 15 kilos, so it's heavy. You have to carry it around everywhere. So... Paris is crawling with the Gestapo and they can just ask you what you're carrying. If you open it, it's wireless. You're finished. You can be shot on the spot. She has to carry this in the metro. She has to carry it on a bike. She has to then set it up. It's got a long aerial that she has to set up and she has to transmit. As she transmits, she can be heard because the Germans have a listening device and they can hear you transmit. And when they hear the wireless signals going out, they sort of round in on the area and they can arrest you within minutes. So she has to carry this, set it up, send a message, and then get out of there as fast as possible. <laughs> really do a runner and send an accurate message so that you know no one's confused the other end. <laughs> so it was a lot. And she now started doing the work of six radio operators because everyone was arrested. So she's single-handed in Paris, building a circuit, being courier, radio operator, and doing it all alone. And she was. She was managing to do this until, of course, she was betrayed. But to come back to your question about the filing of the codes. So what happened is they were told in training school that they had to be really careful with their messages and file it securely. Now, when they said it in the training school, they meant it as file it in the journalistic sense where you file your copy, you file your report. She took it in a literal sense of filing as in a clerical sense. You file it and you keep the record. Records. So that was a mistake. They should have just said, destroy every message. Clear instructions. <laughs> but they didn't. They said, file it, and it could be taken either way. And Noor took it in the literal sense of filing. So she actually diligently kept the records of her messages in a little diary, which was always with her and near her bedside. And when she was arrested, this little notebook was picked up by the Gestapo, and they could see that she had been sending messages. But that itself would not allow them to work her radio, because Noor had been given a secret code. Because she told them that she wouldn't lie, you know, she was like a special student. Leo Marx, the person who was handing out codes to the agents, he gave her a special code. And he said, if you use this code, I'll know you've been captured. That was going to be her message if she was captured. So Noor does do that. But back in London, sadly, they miss it because only Leo knew that, you know, the others don't pick it up and they think she's free. So sadly, the Germans work her radio and they 
they start fooling the English and other agents are called. They are captured as soon as they arrive. So agents went to their death, which is one of the really sad side effects of what happened when Noor was arrested, was that other agents also died. It wasn't her fault because London didn't pick up that message. The moment Leo Marx saw one of the messages, saw the code, he said she's been captured. And then they stopped. But by then, quite a few agents had gone. So that was tragic. But, you know, in the fog of war, these things probably do happen. I mean, you can't start a blame game on these things because then you just go down an endless rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you do look at that at the end of the book anyway, don't you? You do kind of go back to what was discovered mm-hmm. and why certain things happened, which is important to do. But like you say, goodness me, there was so much stress on so many people. But just to go back a little bit, because I hadn't really fathomed what you were just saying. I'm just putting myself in that position and her calmness under such stress having to carry something physically with her that was Mm -hmm. must have felt so conspicuous and was heavy that like you say could have been discovered at any given moment with a Paris that was teaming with Gestapo you can't fathom how that would have felt but her Mm -hmm. determination and her focus and I think you know her ability to meditate as well these things like when the pressure was really on must have all come to a fore. She must have had that focus that kept her being this brilliant wireless operator in such stressful times, you know. So, yeah, you do get a picture of this. She would have been terrified, though. I mean, naturally so. I mean, knowing that, you know, the Gestapo are out to get her, that they have already caught so many of her colleagues. She actually met some of the Gestapo, and she knew it. Later, she realized that it was set up, but they hadn't arrested her because they were just using her to get to the next person at that time. But they had their eyes on her, but she'd managed to escape. But she was also pretty good at escaping the Gestapo because I love some of the stories about how she gets away with her wireless being discovered. So one day she's carrying it on the metro. One of the policemen, he comes up to her and he says, Mademoiselle, what are you carrying? Show us. So she keeps her cool and she opens the box a little bit, shows a little and says, it's a photographic apparatus. See all the light bulbs. And of course, this policeman who doesn't know what a photographic apparatus is, he doesn't want to show his ignorance. He just says, oh, yes, yes, of course. And you know, she closes. She gets over the next stop, runs for her life and gets out. The other lovely little anecdote, actually, I love is when she's setting up this aerial. So now this aerial is like 13 some meters long and she has to set it up somewhere safely without being noticed. And she needed to send an urgent message. So she sets it up outside her flat and puts it onto a tree just outside her, her flat. And as she's doing this, there's somebody behind her and he says, excuse me, mademoiselle, it's an SS officer who lives in the same apartment block. But Noor keeps her cool. She puts on her charm. She's very beautiful. And she says, oh, sorry, officer. I've just wanted to listen to a radio station. And very cleverly, she mentions a band radio station, which had music, but it was banned. So it's like, you know, why are you doing all this if it was okay? She says she's doing all this to listen to a band radio station, but she's so charming that this SS officer, he just melts and he says, I'll help you put it up on this cell. <laughs> oh, and wow. he actually puts it up on this tree, not knowing that half an hour later, she is transmitting to London. <laughs> so Brilliant. she thinks on her feet and she uses her charm when she has to. She also changes her appearance all the time. We know that once she dyes her hair red and she looks hideous, <laughs> <laughs> she's actually noticed by her neighbor 
and um, she changes it back again. And then she uses all her contacts, her music teacher, her doctor. She suddenly lands up at their house and says, I need to transmit. And of course, they've known her from when she was a child. They trust her imminently. They let her in. They know exactly what she's doing. She transmits and she gets out. So she uses all her contacts. And well, after the war, they sort of said how they saw Noor frightened outside their door saying, I need to come in. I need to send a message. This sort of went on. Well, you know, somebody's watching out for a German van outside. She would send the message and run away from the back door. So Noor Inayat Khan, once she's trained in radio, this was really important because it's the first time that women were being trained in radio. And this is because they were losing men really quickly. It was one of the most dangerous areas in the field. They were losing agents at the drop of a hat. They were dropping like flies. And it was important for them to now start training the women in radio. So Noor, she's one of the first batch of women to be trained in radio. And then when she's recruited by the SOE, she becomes the first woman radio operator to be flown into France. So she's literally the first. She is the pathbreaker there and going into one of the most dangerous areas in the field as a radio operator. Which makes you think about the SS officer just mm-hmm. really not clicking at all, just being there with this attractive woman mm-hmm. telling him that she was trying to listen to a band radio station. Absolutely. So initially, when they arrested the first lot and they knew there's still a wireless operator around because they could hear the messages, they just couldn't catch her. The Germans thought they're looking for a man because it was always men who were in the field. But one of those who got arrested, Gilbert, from her group, he inadvertently lets out under torture, he sort of says Madeline, and he drops the word Madeline. And then they know that they are looking for a woman. And the whole thing changes. They set up this whole operation to find this woman, to find Madeline. So she is the first. So it's absolutely phenomenal what she did, being flown in like that. And when you're flown in, it's even more dangerous because they can see the plane landing from the ground and you can be shot while you're in the air <laughs> because you're clearly visible. So the plane has to come in, danger of being shot, land in this field and take off in three minutes without alerting the Germans. And then they have to make their way from the field all alone. Absolutely incredible. And didn't they say afterwards as well, when they found out that the women had gone into the field, that they asked, why did you use women? And they said there was no one else. Yeah, it's true. Especially as wireless operators, they just had to then go to the next stage and get women. And they were sending them, you know, right out there, face to face with the Gestapo. I mean, suddenly she is there facing the Gestapo. It's amazing. This very shy, very, very genteel elite. In her way, it was an elite circle that she was brought up in, but um, she's soft-spoken musician suddenly facing this brutal Gestapo and sometimes getting away with it, just using her charms and her quick thinking and her wit to get out of a situation. She ended up being one of their best officers. There you go. She did, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, she was incredibly brave. She would have been terrified, but she kept going. She absolutely kept going. We see in the files in Q, we see some of her messages back from the field. And she keeps saying that when the war is over, we'll drink champagne. Her boss, her line manager, Vera Atkins, had given her a little brooch of a bird. And she says, your bird is bringing me luck. And when this war is over, we'll drink champagne. So she's always keeping her spirits up. And also aware of keeping other people's spirits up as well, wasn't she? She was very conscientious of everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Also, when she's betrayed and she's arrested, she puts up a fight. She scratches. She's small. She's just 5'2", petite. One German cannot arrest her. She bites him, she scratches him, she draws blood, and one hand is trained on her with the gun, and the other he's dialing for reinforcements. So it takes four or five burly men to come in and 
take her out of this building, take her to their prison in Paris, which is the Gestapo headquarters, Avenue Foch. And she's locked there in the attic. But of course, she messages, she doesn't give up. She is never going to give up. You know, she uses her training to the dot that I'm going to escape. If I'm caught, I'm going to escape. She makes an escape attempt immediately. Then she's locked up again. She then contacts other prisoners and they plan an escape route. It would have been like one of those escapes from Colditz if it had succeeded. They escape, they reach the roof, they open the skylights. But sadly, luck was not on her side. It was the time the air raid sirens went off, the RAF were bombing, and they searched the prisoners' rooms. They found three prisoners missing, found them on the roof, brought them down. <laughs> so now, because she'd made two escape attempts, she had fought and drawn blood. She was labeled as highly dangerous and classified as Nacht und Nebel, which means night and fog. Translated from German, it means night and fog. And that was code for return not required. Just disappear this person literally into the night and fog. And that is how she was classified. And it's amazing to think of her journey. This very young, beautiful writer of children's stories, musician, dreamer, suddenly classified as a dangerous spy. And is then she's sent away from France. She's sent to a prison in Germany, a Forsheim prison, where... She's kept incarcerated for 10 months, and it's really brutal. She is chained. Her hands are changed. Her feet are chained. And there's a single chain passing from her hands to her feet. It's like those medieval paintings you see where people are shackled. She was shackled like that. She couldn't feed herself. She couldn't clean herself. She was kept in isolation for 10 months. She was beaten. She was interrogated. We know from other prisoners that, you know, they could hear her crying at night. But she said nothing. She gave away no names. Other men tough operators they gave away names i'm not blaming them i mean who knows what you do under that sort of torture i'm just saying that others cracked but noor didn't and she gave away nothing and finally after 10 months of torture they took her away september 1944 one night they opened her cell door they said come along and they took her along with three other agents and they were taken to dachau concentration camp and there this is you know that literally the last 24 hours of her life she was brutally tortured once again because she was labeled as highly dangerous she was singled out and also because of the color of her skin she was obviously darker they called her the creole and she was singled out for further torture beaten again gave away nothing and then this sadistic ss officer he puts a gun to her head and he shoots her but noor being noor just goes down screaming liberty so they killed her, but they couldn't break her spirit right till the end. She continued to fight. And I think that is what I take away from Noor's life, because they couldn't break her spirit. This is the inspirational bit. The end is dark, but it's also inspirational just because of her courage. Once the book was published, a lot of people wrote to me and they said how inspired they felt. And in their moments, there was a lady who said she had an operation and she just thought of Noor when she felt pain and thought, you know, if Noor could go through so much pain and torture, what's an operation? So she inspired people in so many ways. I was really surprised because I didn't think it would have such an impact, but it did. So it was really very, very warming to know that she had inspired so many people. And it goes back to her note that you just read out. It goes back mm -hmm. to the light in the dark. 
mm-hmm. and the, the yin and the yang of life and how it works. And did you feel that when you were reading this information, when you were looking at the evidence and the, the documents? Is that how you felt? Oh, gosh, yes. It was it was really hard looking at that because the first time you see those and you see those notes, you know, first the enthusiasm as she's building up. There's a lot of enthusiasm. You know, she's, she's going for her training. Her training notes come in. She has to submit her reports. All that is there. Those were the fun bits. And then, of course, she's out there. Even from the field, she is transmitting. It's very positive. She asks, send me a Mac, Fanny style. She's looking at what she's wearing there. All these little things bring it to life that even though she's terrified, she's keeping her spirits up. She's going for it. And then, of course, you know, we know that we see these notes saying missing in action, the letters sent to her mother. And it follows on from that. There's a year on after the war has ended. They still don't know what's happened to Noor. And then these letters where her brother is writing to the war ministry saying, it's been a year and I don't know. And it's such a polite letter. And, you know, I'd met Vilayat and I could just see him being so polite, like, I don't want to trouble you. But my sister's missing. My my mother is so distressed that we know nothing about her. Those are really, really moving. And, uh, of course, finally, they trace what's happened to her. And it is actually because a prisoner in Forzheim prison, because she had written her address down on a bowl, can't go into all the details, it's in the book. But she had scratched her address on one of the feeding bowls in the prison and she had sent it out, hoping somebody would get it. And they did. She had written her address that we will meet after the war. And she had scratched this address for Taverton Street on it. And this prisoner, after the war is over, comes looking for her. And that's how they knew that Noor was in Forzheim. And then Vera Atkins goes looking for her. Before that, they thought she had been killed in another prison. They thought she'd been killed in Fresnay prison in Paris. But this then gives them a whole new lead. And it was just because she had contacted this other prisoner. (laughs) And the prisoner came looking for her. So it is incredible how then the story unraveled. And then they found that four SOE agents, four women, had been taken to Dachau. And they had been killed. So let's talk a little bit about legacy, because obviously you've spoken about it there, the way people react to her story when they hear it. How much do you think, I mean, obviously this is conjecture, but you're the one that's read all of these things and spoken to people, but how much do you think she was aware of that at the point where she knew how it was going to end? Everything that she'd grown up learning about these stories, these tales of sacrifice. How much do you think she was aware that that would be the effect that she would have, her story would have in the world? I don't think she knew that she would be known after the war. I think she she probably thought she would just disappear and she would be killed and she would disappear. I, I think if she knew that she has become such a heroine now here on your Heroine City podcast, um, uh, she would be really surprised because she was a very low-key person in that sense. She never thought she was doing something brave. She just did what she had to do. And I don't think she would have any idea that she would have become a heroine. <laughs> um, in fact, she was she was somebody who, after the war, she had her plans for after the war, she wanted to fight for Indian independence. She said, that'll be my next struggle, <laughs> was what she had in mind. I don't think she would have thought about it at all. And in her last days in prison, you know, when she knew she was going to die, she would, she would just think, this is it, this is the end. And she would have just thought about her family, really. <laughs> Right. It's an interesting answer because obviously she understood that what her sacrifice meant, but what you're saying is it wasn't about ego, it wasn't about herself, it wasn't it was about the bigger picture always. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She was just somebody who was doing her job, as many people were in the war. You know, they just did what they had to do. You talk to veterans and they just said, you know, this extreme bravery. They said we didn't think about it at the time. We just did what we had to do. And I think 
that is exactly her story too. They just did what they had to do. Some made it through to the end, Noor didn't. But of course, her bravery is extraordinary. And how she, you know, we were talking about meditation, how she survived these 10 months of incarceration is I think that's where her father's teachings came in. She would have definitely lent heavily on his teachings. She would have meditated. That is the only way she could have got through these 10 months of torture and solitary imprisonment not seeing a person apart from her jailers, really. It's a whole year of that with torture. She was fed potato peel soup. There was no nourishment, nothing to write on, just complete isolation and torture. And only meditation would have saved her from this. Thoughts of her father, her family, and that's it. Mm, And having that from a young age, having that connection to her who then died when she was young it definitely mm-hmm. was some sort of preparation in a weird way that she was able to call on that at that point yeah and that's when the bowl thing was happening at that point <laughs> yeah when she's in Forzheim prison is when they were given some knitting needles to do knitting and she used these knitting needles to scratch on the bowl and just sent it out hoping somebody would see it and somebody did and then this conversation starts where they decide they will meet after the war viva la france she scratches that on a bowl she draws a flag once again despite all this keeping not just her spirits up but that of the other prisoners as well and that's how they remember her eyewitness accounts are really important in then building her whole story and seeing what was happening while she was there it's really important i think to underline what you just said about the fact that during the war and this is not an isolated thing that everyone just put one foot in front of the other and did what they had to do I'm not Mm -hmm. a hero I did what I had to do I've heard that said before we've not gone through that so we can't fathom that we see the gravity and we see it in hindsight so it's kind of interesting what the human spirit is capable of isn't it it is I mean to withstand that much torture the mind boggles at how this frail young girl could just do this and have the strength to just carry on which she did and it does (laughs) resonate through time and and someone that talks about different women through different eras of history and ordinary women doing fascinating interesting things it does strike me that there is a ripple effect and there's always connection she found the stories that she read as a child interesting and got something from them and now we're talking about her and it will have a ripple effect through time won't it i just wish she'd been given some paper to write in the prison you know we would have had something she'd written if they had kept it and survived but she was given nothing so you know that's it she was just left there all alone she would have thought of stories in her mind but there would have been no way of her writing it down which Mm. i find really sad but uh, there we are it's really interesting because there's a point where at the beginning of her soe training where i can't remember the gentleman's name but he says to her are you sure you want to do this because you're a children's writer and actually there's going to be a need for children's books after the war children's minds are going to need to be alleviated from post-war pain and suffering and that was interesting to me because i thought well (laughs) in a way she still has done that passed down this Mm -hmm. amazing life that she lived. Mm -hmm. That was an interesting little moment, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's like the First World War. We have the war poets. They died and all you have, Wilfredo, and you have the poetry, which they wrote. And that's it. You know, they would have written so much more if they had survived. But there we are. So we've talked about the fact that she wouldn't have been aware of any kind of personal legacy, but she would have thought about the bigger picture legacy that she was part of, because that was why she was there in occupied France in the first place. And you've mentioned her personal influence on you and your life. But what do you think her legacy now is when it comes to us hearing about Noor in the present? I think 
it's amazing how her story has resonated with so many people for so many reasons. A, I think her background is important. The fact that she was of Indian origin, half Indian origin, her father being Indian. The fact that she was a Muslim, that she was a Sufi. I've given talks in schools, Birmingham or Manchester, where there may be a large population of young Muslim girls. And I have seen how they have lit up when I've told their story. I was told before that many of them may not go to university. They come from very traditional families. They may just be looking after their siblings and then getting married. And if they go to university, then that's a real achievement. There were young girls, uh, say six formers, who came up after that and said, yes, if she could do this in 1940s, (laughs) you know, we can do a lot more. That was amazing. (laughs) Because if you inspire even one person to go to university, that's something. (laughs) In many ways, so we're just looking at her influence on young Muslim women in Britain. That is big. Just across the board, she's just inspired. I get letters from elderly people who feel that, you know, why didn't we know her story? Thank you for bringing it to us. There was a lady who had glaucoma and she said, I couldn't read. My daughter sat with me and read nonstop. We couldn't put down the book and we read. So, you know, these really very moving letters that I get about the effect her her story has had on them. When I started out, nobody knew about Noor. And in fact, you know, when I then campaigned for her to be known, apart from the book, I took it further. And that idea came to me from my readers because so many wrote to me and said, thank you for this story. And why is it that we don't know about her? Why is there no memorial for her? There are memorials for other SOE operatives. Why has she been forgotten? (laughs) It was like a question to me. I said, I don't know why she's been forgotten, but maybe we could do something. Maybe we can have a blue plug outside her house on Fort Abington Street because that's the name she scratched. That's the last address. That's the house she left on her mission. It was her last address in London. It's where she lived with her mother. And I said, maybe a blue plug there would be lovely. (laughs) But as it happened, there was an exchange of letters in the Times and English Heritage then contacted me and said, we see you want to do a blue plug and would you like to apply? So I said, yeah, sure, I'd Never done anything like that, but I applied for the blue plaque. And I said, oh, very good. She'll probably get a blue plaque. The organizers have asked me to fill it in. And then six months later, horror of horrors, I get a call and they say, sorry, it's been rejected. And I was like, what? (laughs) You asked me to do this. Yeah, I'm pretty calm. I don't lose my temper. But honestly, I lost my temper that day. So I said, what reason? And they said, because she didn't live there long enough. It was her mother's house. I said, she was fighting a war. (laughs) She was not knitting socks. She was out training. And that was her address that she kept coming back to on her off days. I was really cross. And that was that. And I said, okay, (laughs) I'm not going to let this go. I'm going to campaign for a memorial to be put up outside this house. (laughs) So by then it was like, hell hath no fury, like a woman's gone. And that was me. I said, we're going to do this. I'd never done anything like it. I'm a writer. I'm a journalist. I have never done things like put up memorials or campaign for statues. I'd just taken this on. And then I spoke to my friends and others and We literally, on the move, we started this campaign. And I said, okay, let's do it. And I started lobbying with MPs, with peers, with anybody I could find. And it actually took off. We started, we registered as a Nurinath Khan Memorial Trust, set up a charity. People helped. Some didn't help. Some helped. A lot of people helped. Went on Radio 4, talked about it. And everything worked. You know, suddenly, this momentum picked up. Then we got the permission. Then they said, okay, but you have to raise the money. 
So I said, okay, now we have to raise money for this. So then it was a funds appeal again. This is before there was Twitter and there were all these social media platforms on which you could get this message across quickly. This is still the old email days and the days of written letters. Anyway, we did it for two years. We campaigned, we did so many things. We had literally from coffee afternoons where we raised 40 pounds to big dinners in the House of Lords and House of Commons where we raised much more money. People came in, they would send us 500 pounds, 5,000 pounds. It was amazing. And I wanted it to be people's fun. You know, I wanted the ordinary people to contribute to it, which they did. I didn't want money from big business who would then want their name on it. And they did. We raised the money. And in two years, we had this memorial. It was unveiled by Princess Anne. And she was on my wish list. I said, well, you know, she's the commandant of the fannies. She should unveil this. And I wrote to her and she agreed. <laughs> it was as simple as that. Then we got a date and... There it was, you know, so the memorial is there in Gordon Square, just outside the house off Daviton Street. And then as it happened, you know, the momentum really picked up and then Royal Mail contacted me and said, we'd like a stamp for her centenary. And I said, of course. And then I put everybody in touch with the family. And then Imperial War Museum wanted something and the RAF wanted something. And then the British Museum wanted a replica of the bust, which they have in their South Asia galleries. They wanted to put the George Cross on display. The family had the George Cross. So I connected them. So the George Cross was there in the galleries. And then English Heritage said, I kept saying English Heritage refused, <laughs> the blue plaque. And they said, well, there is a waiting period of 10 years before you can reapply. They contacted me again and they said, please reapply 10 years later. So as soon as the 10-year deadline passed, I reapplied. Yep. In 2020, in the middle of the lockdown, they asked me to unveil this. So it was it was lovely. It was a deserted street, which was crazy because... For the unveiling, we had 400 people packed inside this park and everybody who couldn't get in because it was an invited event lining outside the park, standing with roses. Unbelievable sight but, uh, for the unveiling of the blue plaque. It was locked down, but we did it. We said, it's OK, oh, let's just do it. And so now she has both a plaque and the memorial. <laughs> so, you know, be. it's mm -hmm. great. So people come, they see the memorial. It's just two minutes walk. They can go see the blue plaque outside her house. And there's such a history with that house. So, you know, it's really apt that it is on Fort Everton Street. <laughs> wow. That's such a journey in itself. But then at the same time, like you said, it was the right time, wasn't it? It all mm -hmm. happened. It all happens when it has to happen. Her files were declassified just when I was ready to go deep into the story. And now I heard about it because of that work. Of the blue plaque and Absolutely. the memorial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now people know about her story across the world. You know, I get people who want to do projects in Australia and America and students who want to do their PhDs. It's really nice to see because... For me, it's important that the next generation get to know about her. So that was something very important to me. We had funds left over from our campaign for the fundraiser, for the memorial. So we said, what do we do? And then I thought, okay, let's give a prize in her name. So for five years, we gave a prize to SOAS because it's part of the University of London and SOAS is next to the, the memorial. So for five years, we gave a Nurinath Khan prize, which was given to a postgraduate student who was working on sort of related areas of gender or human rights or something related to war, women, 
So that was done for five years. And we started a series of lectures, which because of the lockdown, then we stopped. But yeah, we managed to do two and we called it the Liberté series. And that was so that we would bring up new issues because the things she fought for are still there. You know, refugees, immigration, the rise of fascism, neo-fascists rising around the world again. These issues still exist. We feel it would be good if we kept these issues alive and got the younger generation involved. So we had the Liberté series of lectures in her name. It was good. I was just about to say, in a, a world post-World War II with generations that have never even had any kind of inclination of a country at war, it's important, mm-hmm. isn't it, to just remind people that it can mm-hmm. still happen? Of course. I mean, and now we're seeing, you know, war in Europe again. So exactly. it's something that people need to be aware of. So we felt that her relevance for the next generation was really important because there's no point just having a stone statue that is is of no meaning unless people know the life and what it stood for and the relevance of it. She was somebody who sacrificed her life in the fight against fascism. She was somebody who believed in nonviolence. She believed in the unity of people across religions. These were all core values she stood for, which are so important today. Half the world is divided on religion and caste and, you know, various other things. So these values that she died for, it's important to restate them. Absolutely. I think that was one of the strongest points, actually, from the book for me, was the Sufi way of looking at religion and bringing religions together in her father's teachings. I think for me, that's so important in this world we live in right now, is to find connection, even if you don't have a belief. But if you have a belief, there's always commonality. And Mm -hmm. that was something she was brought up actually actively looking at she read exactly. the bible as well as the quran she she did all of those things and saw connection in everything yeah yeah her father used to have this thing which he started called universal worship where he would light a candle to every religion every night they would have this service so christianity buddhism hinduism and one candle the 10th candle would be for those who had no formal religion He would even light a candle for those. It just shows how inclusive her family was. And that is how she grew up. And it's just such a lovely message, really. Really is. I think that's brilliant. Mm. Well, thank you for putting all that together and for the trust. Are there any plans now for the Inayat Khan Memorial Trust? No, I think at the moment we do what we do every year is uh, we always have a service on the 13th of September, which is uh, the day she was killed. We have that in Gordon Square because now we have somewhere where people can gather actually and just pay tribute to her. We do that every year. And that continues. I think we've pretty much ticked all the boxes that we had to. I'm always giving talks and things on her. So keeping the story going. So there are others who now want to do things. And it's very nice. I can sit back for a while. You can see what your work has inspired, mm-hmm. which is obviously shining a light on Noor, Noor inspiring others. There is a new film coming out. Mm-hmm. There's a short film called Limite coming out, I think, February 21st. With mm-hmm. The news anchor Sam Naz playing okay. Noor. So that was something that I looked up. I also remember being in Call to Spy, which is a film that I watched recently. I think it was on Netflix. 2015 film. But she was one of a few characters. It wasn't a film about Noor's life. Do you think... Mm-hmm. It's time for something like that? Yeah, well, it's been optioned ever since the book was written. <laughs> but, you know, all these things take a long time. But at the moment, the option is for a television series. So fingers crossed, we'll see six or eight part even on Noor's life. So, yeah, that should happen. Plus, we are hoping, I can't speak about it now, for a big theatre production. So let's see. <laughs> okay, well, good. Well, I'll be there for and see. Just to kind of round us off, I think you mentioned two anecdotes. But I was going to ask if you had a, an interesting fact or an anecdote that you wanted to kind of finish off with about Noor. You know, we, we sort of know the the very serious side of Noor, the hard worker, the determination, the courage. But she was actually pretty clumsy at times as well. So when she started off, she used to bang away 
away at her typewriter and on her Morse code. So the girls used to tease her and call her Bang Away Lulu. <laughs> that was her, that was the nickname they gave her. And she was a real sport. So she went with it and she couldn't dance very well, but she loved dancing. <laughs> so she'd always said she had two left feet, but they would all dance um, after work. So Bang Away Lulu, the thought of her dancing really badly <laughs> is, is, is quite endearing. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Bang Away Lulu. That's a brilliant nickname, isn't it? <laughs> Wonderful. Well, well, thank you, Shabani, for being here today and for talking us through this exceptional life of this woman who is going to go on to inspire generations of people. It's been difficult at times, but an important book to read. And I think that your work is important. And like you say, it came at the right time and it will resonate for years to come. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.